This is the fourth in a series of talks on the five fundamentals, titled The Fourth Fundamental, The Way of Selflessness, recorded January 19, 1997, at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. So this uh, is going to be the fourth in a series of talks on the five fundamentals and the seven stages of a spiritual path. And so this is the fourth fundamental, so just a quick review. The essence of the first fundamental is consciousness alone is absolutely real. Sometimes in the traditions that's put is there's nothing but God, or there's nothing but Brahman, or there's nothing but Allah or Buddha nature or something. Our word here is consciousness, and in the first talk I gave, I explained why we use that word. The essence of the second fundamental is ignorance of the real is the root of suffering. So it's our ignoring this spiritual fact, this spiritual reality, that is the root cause of all our suffering. And I gave a talk and explained how that works as well. And then the essence of the third fundamental is the end of suffering comes by way of gnosis, which is a realization that consciousness alone is absolutely real. Gnosis is this word from the uh, Greek language that means knowledge, but it does not mean conceptual knowledge or even experiential knowledge. It means a direct, immediate uh, knowledge of ultimate reality. So today we're going to talk about the fourth fundamental, and I will read it. The way of gnosis is the way of selflessness. Cultivated on the basis of love, boundless compassion, and truth, profound insight. It may be seen as a path unfolding in seven stages. And the seven stages are the awakening of faith, investigation of teachings, unification of self, purification of mind, illumination of heart, exhaustion of will or kenosis, is the technical term we use for that, and seven, sacrifice of ignorance, which is gnosis. It's governed by four principles, attention, commitment, detachment, and surrender, <clears throat> reflecting seven virtues, courage, humility, justice, patience, gratitude, mercy, and joy, and embodied in four disciplines or practices, inquiry, meditation, morality, and devotion. So, this is really an attempt here to uh, sum up very succinctly the major features of a spiritual path, the principles that govern it, and the really sets of practices that are employed, because each, for instance, one of these practices, like meditation, is really a category that includes many, many, many kinds of meditation and so forth. So it's a kind of reminder, scanning through this, you sort of get in very briefly the whole picture. So, we will deal with the stages of a spiritual path in the future, these seven stages. I've already given talks on the seven virtues and a talk on the precepts there in the library. If you want to check those out, uh, you can follow those. And the four principles of attention, commitment, detachment, and surrender I talk about so often in my talks uh, that I'm not going to try to cover those today. I might do a special talk on that. I don't know. We'll see. But this morning, I want to focus on these three fundamental principles mentioned in the beginning of this. First of all, the way of selflessness, selflessness. 
And then it says cultivated on the basis of love and truth. So selflessness, love, and truth. And we'll touch on the four practices here just to sort of see how these practices embody these principles. So the three principles, or, or I should say, of the three principles, selflessness, love, and truth, selflessness is primary. And as I've often said, if I had to sum up all the teachings of all the mystics of all times and all places in one word, that word would be selflessness. It really contains the whole path. It contains all the practices. It contains all the principles. Everything is contained in that one single word. So why selflessness? Well, we can break it down a little, a little bit by saying that selflessness expresses three aspects or dimensions of the path. First of all, selflessness expresses the truth that is to be realized. So in that sense, it's an ontological or philosophical statement about the nature of reality. Second of all, selflessness, is what, and this is what this particular fundamental addresses, is the way to realize this truth. So it expresses the methodology of the path, you might say. And then finally, selflessness is the fruit of that realization. So it's the outcome of the path. So that one word uh, does an awful lot of things. It's an extraordinarily rich word. So, uh, what does it mean to say that selflessness is the truth, uh, the, the reality? Well, the reality, according to the testimony of the mystics and my testimony, is there really is no self. There is only consciousness itself. Consciousness itself is the only reality. There is no self. There is no uh, I or other or, or subject or object, self or world. All these dualities, dichotomies, distinctions don't have any absolute reality. This is why, for instance, the Buddhist master, Huang Po, says, Bodhi, or Buddha mind, is pure mind, which is the source of everything, and is absolutely without distinctions, there being no such entities as selfness and otherness. So is the Buddhist tradition. This is the way they express this. Uh, the great Hindu sage Shankara wrote, There is neither seer, nor seeing, nor seen. There is but one reality, changeless, formless, and absolute. So here's how it's expressed in the Hindu tradition. The great uh, Sufi sheikh Ibn Arabi uh, says, The existence of non-God, i.e. the existence of the creature, is pure non-existence, having no substantial basis. So here we have a sample of mystics from different traditions in their own language expressing this truth. There is no self. And it's important to understand that selflessness here does not express some ideal perfect state that you can attain. But if you work real hard at being selfless, eventually you become sort of this very saintly creature. Selflessness is expressing your condition right now. That is the truth of your condition right now. Not something that you can become. You cannot become what you already are. So all you can do is realize it. The problem is we don't realize it. 
That is the cause of our suffering. It's not that we are selfish. It's that we don't realize there is no self there in an absolute sense. We literally ignore it, which means we have no gnosis. Ignorance is the opposite of gnosis, actually, in the, in the root. We literally ignore it. So then the question is, how can we realize it? How can we awaken this gnosis in ourselves? And this brings us to the second aspect of selflessness as the way to this realization of truth, the methodology of the path, you might say. And this is where the two other principles come into play, the cultivation of love and the pursuit of truth, the seeking truth. So what does cultivating truth mean, or, or seeking truth, or pursuing truth? Well, it means starting from wherever you are and making an inquiry, an investigation, an examination of who you are. You can just simply take the question, who am I? Start with that question. Another way of describing a spiritual path is a spiritual, it's a spiritual quest. And quest, the word quest, is related to question. It's based on a question. It's not based on an answer. It's based on a question. You have to have that humility not to think that you know everything about yourself. I mean, that's, and you have to need a little curiosity. That's all you really need to begin this. If you were like me for many years, I knew everything, and so I wasn't on any spiritual quest. I already knew everything. It was only when circumstances of my life made me uh, begin to doubt that I knew everything that this opportunity opened up to go on a quest. So you just take this question, who am I? And there's no uh, real secret to pursuing it. Begin by examining your life, trying to figure out or pinpoint who you think you are. We use this word I all the time in our language. We hear it all the time in our heads, you know, oh, Gee, I, yeah, I think I'd like to go to the beach today. No, I don't know. It's going to be cloudy. I've got a lot of things to do. I, I, I. What does that word refer to? What's the referent of that word? Sit down and make a list wouldn't be a bad way to start. Who do I think I am? Who do you think you are? Let's see. What are some common perceptions of ourselves? Anybody got a... This body. Body. That's very, very common. People identify with their body. They think they are a body. I'm a point of perception. A point of perception. Okay, good. Personality. Personality. How would you be more specific about that? uh, The characteristics. uh, Things you like and don't like. And the way of expressing myself. Temperament. Okay. Behavioral patterns. Certain behavioral patterns. Good. Thoughts. Thoughts. Yeah, most people are very, very much identified with their thoughts. Will. Will. Very good one. Volition, yes. I do. What you do, yes. Well, that's part of that. What your ambitions are, partly. What you what want. What your job is. And some people are very identified with their job, but it's easier to see that we're not actually our job because if you're stripped of your job, you're not still necessarily. Uh, yeah, still you. Although some people, it's, you know, it's so serious they'll go out and kill themselves if they if they're so attached to their job and they lose their job it's that's a real strong identification with a social role it's a good example of that but isn't the same thing true of some of the others like the body if you lose an arm are you still you or not well that's a good question this one we're going to inv- investigate you see i'm not giving you an answer here i'm saying you start with 
examining, making a list of who you think you are. And it'll be slightly different for every person, by the way. And it's uh, be different for d- different people in different cultures, all of which starts to give us a clue that maybe there isn't something absolute here. But different people have stronger identifications, really strongly identify with the body, and some people really strongly identify with their thoughts or their emotions or whatever. So it'll be different for each person. That's why you yourself have to sit down and see, who am I? You know, get it out of some psychology book. You start with this list of who you think you are, and then the next thing is to start observing these things closely to see if this is true. And you need to observe this, these phenomena, whatever the phenomena are that you think you are, closely, and you need to do it over a period of time. And this is where the practice of meditation comes in. Because most people, as you can attest this for yourself, don't have the stability of attention to be able to observe, for instance, thoughts closely over a period of time or body (laughs) sensations closely over a period of time. Our attention gets distracted so easily. So one of the first things you learn when you sit down to meditate, and it's a wonderful thing to learn. Oh my gosh, look how easily I'm distracted. So through training in meditation, trains attention so that you can then continue to conduct this inquiry. So we have these two practices. You see how they relate to each other, how they, they form part of an organic unity here. And they're all about uh, uh, carrying out this principle of investigating the truth of your situation concretely. That's their purpose here. Then you start to observe whatever it is you think you are. It's a body. You start to really pay attention to your body. Watch your body. You sit there if you're in meditation, or just you don't have to sit in a formal meditation. If your mind is that stable to begin with, you don't need meditation. You sit there and you start watching. And you see that the body is really a collection of sensations, little prickly pinpoints and things, and each one arises and passes. They go very rapidly, and and they give this impression there's something solid there, but when you really look into it, you see there really isn't. Each little sensation comes and goes, and then you continue to watch over a period of time. You watch when you go to sleep at night. Oh, the whole body is gone from consciousness, from awareness. Or maybe you have a different body. Maybe you're a bird. Suddenly you're or a butterfly. This was the famous little discourse that uh, Cheng Su gave, the, the, the Taoist sage, about he dreamed that he was a butterfly, and then he wakes up and he's a human being. Well, which is he? How does he know which he is? The whole idea is watching your own experience and relying on your own experience, not what you've been taught as a child, not what your culture's taught you and all that, relying on your own experience, seeing. You watch your thoughts. Well, they come and go. You watch your emotions. They come and go. All this phenomenon is constantly arising and passing away in awareness. And after a while, if you do this, what the mystics say, but you have to really do this to see if it's true, to check it out for yourself, what they say is eventually you'll begin to realize you can't be any of these things that you thought you were because they're all arising and passing. And not one of them is staying there. And yet there's still this sense of an observer. So whatever the self is, this I, this, what did you say? That was very nice. A point of perception. A point of perception remains through all this. It all rises and passes away. Now, 
in the fundamental, it says that in this pursuit of truth, uh, another way of looking at this, cultivating truth, is profound insight, direct insight. This isn't a question of or reaching an intellectual conclusion. And one of the traps in doing practices of inquiry and meditation is that we get a little taste of this, and then we come to an intellectual conclusion. Oh, yes, the mystics must be right. I can see all this is impermanent. But we haven't let it actually transform our experience of ourselves in the world. So it really doesn't do much good. But if you continue with this observation, you continue to watch this, your experience, your day-to-day experience will change. Here's how the contemporary mystic Simone Weil describes this. A transformation then takes place at the very roots of our sensibility, in our immediate reception of sense impressions and psychological impressions. It is a transformation analogous to that which takes place in the dusk of evening on a road, where we suddenly discern as a tree what we'd first seen as a stooping man, or where we suddenly recognize as a rustling of leaves what we thought at first was whispering voices. We see the same colors, we hear the same sounds, but not in the same way. That's beautifully put about uh, a description of how this persistent practice starts to transform your experience, not just your thoughts. And that's the beginning, the real beginning of the revolution that happens on a spiritual path. Then once we're convinced who we are not, we're not our bodies or our thoughts or emotions or whatever we thought we were. It's not that they disappear. They continue to rise and pass in consciousness and all that. But we just no longer identify that as us. The question still remains, well, then, who are we? And one of the first things we begin to think about is we must be some sort of point of perception. Very good way to put that. The observer. Well, who is this observer? Who is the one that is aware of all this phenomena arising and passing in consciousness? Who is the one that knows it's a butterfly in a dream and knows it's a human being in the waking state or whatever? And so this attention turns inward and this inquiry goes inward and it goes deeper and deeper. Now there are many, many methods of pursuing this question of who is the observer, who is, what is this awareness, this mind that is a uh, that knows all this stuff. Here's one uh, very simple, very precise one from the Hindu tradition, just as an example. It's given by Ramana Maharshi. And here's what he says. When other thoughts arise, one should not pursue them, but should inquire, to whom did they arise? The answer that would emerge would be to me. Thereupon, if one inquires, who am I? The mind will go back to its source and the thought that arose will become quiescent. With repeated practice in this manner, repeated practice, very important, with repeated practice in this manner, the mind will develop the skill to stay in its source. Thus, when the mind stays in the heart, the I, which is the source of all thoughts, will go, and the true self, which ever exists, will shine. So here's the practice of not following thoughts, just when your thoughts arise, you, keep, you just ask, well, to whom are they arising? And by the way, you can extend this practice to any phenomena. When you're having body sensations, well, who's feeling this twitch in my wrist? Or when you're having emotions, when you're furiously angry, you can say, well, who's experiencing this anger? 
And you can do this and just turn the attention back. Notice none of this is about getting rid of emotions, getting rid of thoughts, getting rid of body sensations, anything like that. It's making this inquiry about to whom are they occurring? To whom are they happening? <clears throat> so really, the to summarize this uh, cultivating truth or pursuing truth or seeking truth, we can put it this way. The mystics say the truth is, the reality is, there is no self. If you think you're a self, any kind of self, any kind of entity, individual, soul, whatever you think you are, go find it. Go look for it. And what the mystics say is, our experience was we never found one. But you try it. You don't take the mystics' word for it. You go see for yourself. Find out who you are. As Huang Po says, only come to know the nature of your own mind in which there is no self and no other and you will, in fact, be a Buddha. That's just that simple. That's what it is. That's that gnosis, that realization of that truth. And it's a very simple truth. There is no self. So then we can ask, then, what does the second great principle mentioned in this fundamental, uh, cultivating compassion, love and compassion, what does that have to do with seeking truth and having insights and so forth? And in our culture, we usually think of truth as something intellectual, something to do with the intellect, and we think of love as something emotional, you know, and they don't seem to have much to do with each other. So then why would cultivating love be so essential to a mystical path? And by the way, you go read through the traditions. You'll see every tradition, there's cultivating love and compassion in every single tradition, equally as important as making this inquiry, this investigation, and doing the practices of meditation equally as important. Well, the first thing we can see immediately is that love is selfless. True love is selfless. And something we all have at least some little experience of in our life. When we love someone, at the very least, we start putting their interests on a par with our own. Instead of just thinking, well, we can get out of the situation and so forth, we start saying, oh, gee, Jennifer, what would you like to do tonight? I feel like going to see a movie, but how, do you, how are you feeling? She says, I'm really tired. I'd like to stay home. It's usually the reverse of this, by the way. But uh, in our case, I said, oh, okay. I'll sacrifice my desire to go see the movie because she's tired. When we deeply love another person, we're willing to put their interest above our own. And even to the point of sacrificing our own lives. That's rare. But some of you have children. Uh... I think that's uh, probably the deepest form of uh, naturally occurring human love. And there are many, many uh, uh, examples of that, of parents who do sacrifice themselves for their children. Soldiers who sacrifice themselves for their buddies in a war situation. Uh, all sorts of situations where people do. It's, it's rare, but it's not that rare. It's possible. This shows us the power of love, and it shows us the selfless nature of love might say, really, love is truth in action. It is that truth in action, right there. The second uh, reason cultivating love and compassion is crucial to the path is because this delusion of selfhood, that there is some self or entity in here, is not just an intellectual or philosophical delusion. 
is not just some theoretical conclusion we've arrived at that we can easily undo by arriving at another theoretical conclusion. It is very, very deeply rooted. It shapes our whole psychological makeup. It shapes our patterns of behavior, how we feel and think, how we even actually perceive the world in terms of this duality of I and other. Very, very deep, and it is built up over a long time. It's like a habit, at least many, many years. And if you uh, are come from the Eastern tradition, in those traditions, they say it's a habit built up over many, many lifetimes. So it cannot be just uh, broken by just uh, some intellectual insight, just coming to a theoretical conclusion about this. That pattern will go on and on and on. The corollary of this, by the way, is that if we do not break the habit, if we continue to uh, act and behave and feel and think and perceive self Ishly, from a self-centered point of view, the habit gets reinforced. So uh, a lot of people think, well, I don't know if I'm ready to go on a spiritual path. I'll, I won't go on a path right now. You don't realize that you're on a path. There are two paths in life. One is the path that leads to bliss and happiness, and the other is the path that leads to suffering. And we don't realize, but we're working at suffering when we're being selfish and self-centered. We are just reinforcing that. We are digging ourselves deeper and deeper in. So this acting selflessly, starting to try to uh, see and experience the world selflessly from a point of view of love and compassion is what interrupts this habit, starts to break it. Here's how Catherine of Siena describes it. She was a great Christian mystic, and she's describing in terms of God uh, instructing her in visions. And so God tells her, where the fire of my sweet charity is, the water of selfishness cannot enter to put out this sweet fire in the soul. So in other words, when we're acting selflessly, then we're interrupting that pattern and it doesn't just keep rolling along. This is also why the contemporary Hindu mystic Ananda Moyamai says, to criticize people or to feel hostile towards anyone harms oneself and puts obstacles into one's path to see the supreme. If someone does something bad, you should feel nothing but affection and benevolence toward him or her. The more kindly and friendly you can feel and behave towards everybody, the more will the way to the one who is goodness itself open out. So, in this funny paradoxical way, uh, being selfish is self-detrimental, and being selfless is actually the, the best thing you can do for yourself. It's a, it is a paradox. It's one of those self-reflexive paradoxes in logic. And the more you give, the more selfless you are in a certain sense, the more you're going to get. The trick here is you can't do it in order to get. You have to give up the wanting to get and just do it, and then it happens. This is a particularly important advice and a particularly important practice on a path this cultivating love and compassion, because the pursuit of liberation, of enlightenment or gnosis itself can become very selfish. We can just be concerned about our own suffering, our own unhappiness, and we can be meditating and we can be inquiring and we can forget about everybody else. And there's a, again, there's an ultimate paradox in here. If you're doing it just for that reason, even if you give up everything else and you just want enlightenment, and you have this idea, I'm going to be enlightened, I want enlightenment, that very selfishness, that very eyeness in there is going to be your obstacle. 
and you might get rid of every other obstacle, and that will remain your obstacle. This is why Tsongkhapa, a great Buddhist uh, Tibetan teacher, writes, To overcome the attitude of seeking the bliss of peace for yourself, you should train for a long time in love and compassion, and the altruistic mind of enlightenment, which has love and compassion as its root. Notice again here, you should train for a long time, a long time. These practices uh, take a long time to cultivate. So how can you actually do this? Are there any, are there any practices, any specific disciplines that can help us do this? And there are. And in all mystical traditions, you'll find one version or another of a set of concrete precepts that you can adopt, or virtues that are recommended that you can then use to frame situations in your life, everyday situations, which bring to light this habit of selfishness, which is often, by the way, unconscious. We're not always aware we are doing this. So by adopting, let's say, a set of precepts, uh, let's take one as an example, not to lie. If you decide, well, what would happen if I cut lying out from my life? Let me start watching, observing closely my day-to-day -day activities. And every time I tell a little lie, let me become aware of it. And then let me uh, use that awareness to then make this inquiry. Who am I? Who's the one who's telling the lie? Why am I telling this lie? What am I afraid of? What am I trying to gain here? And you do that, you start... Uh, again, seeing your whole life in a, in a new light, literally in a new light. You're, you're throwing a light on your life in very meticulous fashion. And so you, you begin to realize how pervasive this self-centeredness is. It's not a question that we're bad people and we're just selfish and we just want what we want. It has nothing to do with that sort of judgment. This is the nature of the, the mechanism of delusion. We want to become aware of it so that then we can interrupt it. If you're not aware of it, you cannot interrupt it. The more you use precepts to start observing how the selfishness, the self-centeredness operates in your day-to-day -day, uh, behavior, how it controls your life, that's where you can really get at it and, and then interrupt it and see what would happen. Again, it's an experiment. So instead of telling the little white lie that you always uh, would have told before, you now recognize, oh, I'm about to tell a little white lie. What would happen if I didn't? And so you try it. And you see what would happen, uh, uh, what it would be like to start living selflessly, to stop living from this center of what can I get, how can I enhance myself, how can I protect myself, and living on a different basis. Now, again, many uh, seekers can be very faithful in their practice of inquiry and meditation, and they get very lazy about practicing precepts and virtues. And all I can tell you is from my experience in my life, in my path, this was really of critical importance. It's what uh, integrated my spiritual uh, aspirations into my everyday life and made everyday life the path. Taking uh, precepts, I didn't have these 10 precepts. I drew a few from this tradition and that tradition and so forth. But I took them seriously, and I really tried to implement them 
in very concrete ways. One of mine was humility. I took as a virtue to practice humility. And that meant not just having a general attitude of, well, okay, I'll just be humble. I would catch myself in situations in an argument or something where I was convinced I was right about something and I was a very argumentative person. And then I would stop and I'd say, no, this is where the practice of humility comes in. It means stop. It just means stop. Stop thinking you're right here. Recognize you might be wrong. Shut up. It's that concrete. It started to actually change my behavior. Not all at once. This old pattern of arguing and being right was a very old habit. But it started to. I took a vow of celibacy, limited celibacy. There was one person who was an exception. And that wasn't because I was wildly promiscuous. But in the life I was leading in Hollywood at the time, my relations with most members of the opposite sex were based on a kind of subtle flirtation. This little sort of uh, uh, psychological game of sexual conquest. Nothing ever happened necessarily physically, but it was, you know, it was like it, at a business lunch. The subtext of everything was, oh, do you find me attractive? Yes, I find you attractive. You want to go to bed? Nothing would ever happen, but there would be a subtle psychological satisfaction of knowing that it could have been. So that's what that vow meant to me, really, was cutting all out. Stop relating to women, uh, attractive women, on, the, on a sexual basis like that. And these were things I was even hardly aware of until I started really trying to live out these precepts and these virtues. And then I began to see, I was shocked at how much of uh, this went on. I had no idea. So these are th these uh, virtues and precepts and practicing morality is, as I said, not about perfecting yourself into some sort of saint. It's about really getting to know uh, and see how this delusion of selfhood governs and controls our lives all the time. That's really what it's about. The other part of, of this cultivating love and compassion is uh, really finding, uh, starting with at least people in your life that, that you already love and really trying to deepen that love. See what it would mean to love them unconditionally. And this was the most powerful part of my path, that you can read in my book, was this taking Samantha, this woman I'd fallen in love with, as a uh, a kind of a koan and, and trying to understand what would it really mean to love someone unconditionally. At that time in Hollywood and among the New Age groups, everybody was talking about unconditional love. They go into workshops to do unconditional love. And I thought, what would it actually mean to love someone unconditionally? Again, when I started thinking of it that way, I could see all the conditions that I would put on my love. I'll love you if you love me. I'll love you if you treat me nice. You know, it's all a bargaining game. So what does it mean to drop the conditions? What would it mean? So uh, my advice here is to, uh, to use a word that I learned from Jennifer, a modern word, be proactive with this. Don't just wait around. Now, the third uh, reason that cultivating love and is essential for a spiritual path is because underneath our self-centeredness, there is a terror of annihilation. We are not self-centered just because we are bad little boys and girls. There's a real reason for it. And that is because we feel if we don't take steps to protect ourselves, to enhance ourselves, to build up ourselves, we will be destroyed. And as we start to strip away 
these layers of selfishness, that fear starts to come to the fore. It starts to be exposed, and we recoil from it. So it's through practicing love and compassion that you can actually start to experience that on the other side of selfishness is not uh, annihilation and oblivion. On the other side is joy and bliss. You have to learn this through your own experience. It's just like a child who's terrified of getting into the water before they know how to swim. And they, they go slowly. And once they get in the water, and once they learn themselves that the water can be a, a very playful medium, very happy, joyful medium, uh, then the water hasn't changed, but their whole attitude towards the water has changed. Now what was terrifying to them is, uh, is a wonderful experience. You can't get them out of the pool at the end of the day. So practicing love and compassion is this seeing for yourself that uh, what this leads to is not annihilation, but to real joy and bliss in your own experience. And that's why in mystical traditions, there are formal practices of devotion. Now, it's also true that we find it difficult to love unconditionally other beings like us, or at least that appear like us, who appear to have faults, who themselves appear to be selfish, and sometimes are, uh, who we are afraid will take advantage of us, and so forth. So in almost all traditions, with the exception of Buddhism, and it's not a total exception, because there are aspects of this in Buddhism, there, uh, there is the recommendation that you use an image, a name, uh, some form of the divine, which itself really has no image or name or form or anything, to symbolize that and to take that as a focus of a practice of devotion. This is why uh, Krishna in the Bhagavad Gita tells Arjuna, greater is the toil of those whose minds are set on the unmanifest, in other words, the formless. For the path of the unmanifest is hard for mortals to attain. But those for, for whom I, Krishna, and the end supreme, who surrender all their works to me and who meditate on my form with pure love and adore me, these I very soon deliver from the ocean of death because they have set their hearts on me. Now, this is a wonderful explanation of the difference of a path where you are trying to realize formlessness and a path where you have some image or name of God that is the focus of your practice. And Krishna's uh, saying there's no true dichotomy here. There's not two different sorts of mysticism. It's much easier. It's much easier as deluded human beings for us to use a, an archetype, a symbol of the divine, as the focus for our love and devotion. In other traditions, of course, it wouldn't be Krishna. It would be God or Allah or Elohim or whatever name in the in the uh, some of the Mahayana Buddhist traditions, especially in Tibet, uh, it's guru yoga. The, the guru can stand as this uh, embodiment of enlightened mind, and you can do guru yoga and have the same sort of devotional practices built around that. If you are not attracted to practices of devotion, and if you uh, look down on them uh, and think, well, this is objectifying the divine, and I'm, I'm beyond that, I'm so sophisticated, I understand that the divine is really formless, don't be so proud. Because first of all, you have already objectified enlightenment. You think of enlightenment as something other than yourself, 
some state that you're going to attain someday, something out there where, I don't know. So you've already subtly done that. The dualistic mind can't help but do that. So you actually committed the same, quote, error that the most uh, devoted Hindu peasant has. It's just that you're blind to it because you're so intellectually sophisticated. You've also, by the way, cut yourself off from a tremendously powerful practice, a rich practice. And, you've, uh, and part of this is you usually cut yourself off from uh, inner guidance, from really finding that deep source of inner guidance which comes through a devotional practice. So don't think you're uh, better off than everybody. Have a, uh, have a practice of a little humility. There are formal practices of devotion where we take this image or name or form or archetype of the divine and you, through prayer or chanting or some form of activity, you surrender yourself completely to it or try to, unconditionally. And in that experience of intense devotional prayer or chanting, if you are doing it with a sacred attitude, not as uh, entertainment, something to distract yourself, you know, really get into it, you will discover for yourself, you'll have a little experience of selflessness and the bliss that comes with it. This is like the kid getting into the shallow end of the pool and realizing that the water's not going to swallow them up and they can splash around in it. And then actually, after a while, you can actually float and let go and uh, the water keeps you up. And this is what you experience in these devotional practices. Annihilation does not await you on the other side of surrendering yourself. What awaits you is bliss. Here's how the Hasidic masters describe the approach to devotional prayer, if you want to get this experience. Think of yourself as nothing and pray only for the sake of God. As long as you can still say the words by your own will, know that you have not yet reached the deeper levels of prayer. Be so stripped of selfhood that you have neither the awareness nor the power to say a single word on your own. So how do you do this? Well, you do this through practice, through trying it. Get a prayer and start saying it. And there, there are books you can read about how to cultivate this, but again, it's like learning how to swim or something. You have to go do it. What does it mean when you get to that point where the words are just flowing out of you? You're not saying them. You have no consciousness of saying them. They're just happening. What would that be like? You've got to find out for yourself. Above all, devotion means surrendering the sense of self-will. This is the linchpin of our delusion. The, the, somebody mentioned this when we were asking, when I asked, who do you think you are? This idea that we are actors. There's somebody in here who acts, who wills, and, and makes things happen. The most difficult for most people, the most difficult aspect of this delusion, of this bubble, you like to burst. So in all these traditions, this you'll find in one form or another, this advice, surrender your will, surrender self-will. The Hindu Upanishads say, the man who surrenders his human will leaves sorrow behind and beholds the glory of the Atman by the grace of the Creator. And Catherine of Siena puts it this way. She says, it is by that death of self-will that she, the soul, realizes her union with me, and in no other way could she perfectly accomplish this. Even in the Buddhist tradition, which I say does not have a strong emphasis on surrender to anything because there is no uh, 
uh, image of God. They very much discourage this of, of the divine. Even in their analysis of the cause of suffering, it is our will to live, to become, to continue, that is at the very root of our suffering. And so this, uh, this sense of volition uh, is what you have to see through, that there is no one there willing, clinging, and so forth. So volition is what creates karma in the Buddhist terminology. And, and it's not action itself. Buddhas act, but they do not create karma because there's no self-will behind their actions. Their actions are just the actions of the Tao, just happening. There's no person in there. There's no will. The practice of surrender, or practices of surrender, devotional practice of surrender, uh, again, are very hard to describe. Uh, you just have to start doing them to see for yourself, what does this mean? It's much easier to say what it doesn't mean, although some people have to actually try this out to see. A lot of the spiritual path is about uh, failing. You, you have some idea of what this is about. You try it, it doesn't work, so you give that up, and it's like a process of elimination. But it does not mean uh, surrendering your own will. Uh, it does not mean that you stop making plans for your life. It does not mean you stop responding to injustice in the world. It does not mean that you neglect everyday duties. These are all uh, things that uh, are part of the form, the human form, human society, and so forth. It does mean you stop looking for your own interests in these things, at least stop in the beginning, stop looking exclusively for your own interests. And very often, for instance, responding to injustice is a very selfless thing to do. It's a wonderful practice of selflessness. Often you have to put yourself out on a limb. You have to take some risks. So it's a question here of motivation. Ultimately, though, what it really does mean is to stop trying to force the world to the, be the way you want it to be, which is what we're always trying to do. We're trying to, we have an image of how the world would be perfect for us, our little paradise, and then the world, of course, is never that way, and we go around trying to force it into this image, to fit this image, and it never does, and so we're always disappointed, we're always unhappy, and so forth. And we're always blaming somebody else or, or the world or even sometimes God because God didn't create the world the way we wanted it to be. So a primary shift of attitude has to happen in this surrender. It's appreciating the world just as it is. It means uh, joining the dance, whether it's the, the dance of creation or the terrible dance of destruction, which is also part of the divine dance. It's dancing willingly instead of being dragged around the dance floor, as I've often said. Anyway, in the end, the, cultivating this devotion to the divine, to the beloved, as uh, it's often expressed in some traditions, uh, works because, as Rumi says, Rumi the great uh, Islamic Sufi poet, love is that flame which, when it blazes up, burns away everything except the beloved. Beautiful image. Beautiful image. If you are a true devotee, of the divine in whatever form the divine appears to you. And you begin this practice uh, of devotion, not just the formal practices, but trying to live in your life, make everything service to the divine. And you are willing to do anything, to surrender anything, to sacrifice anything for God. Eventually, as Rumi says, this love will just burn everything else away. It'll burn away all your attachments. It'll burn away all the obstacles. It'll just burn it all away. And when it's all burned away, including yourself, there's nothing left but the divine.
So both cultivating uh, love and compassion and seeking truth are necessary to the path. And they both lead to the same end. They aren't two different uh, kinds of uh, mystical uh, traditions, so to speak. There's no dichotomy, there's no conflict here. This is why Ramana Maharshi says, whatever the means, the destruction of the sense of I and mine is the goal. So there is no doubt that the end of the paths of devotion and knowledge is one and the same. doesn't matter what means you take. These are all relative to, the, to, the, to that absolute goal of selflessness, realizing the truth of selflessness. Which brings us to the third aspect of the meaning of selflessness in mystical terms. The, the, the first was that it states the truth about our situation. The second is it is the principle that governs all these uh, practices and disciplines and so forth that make up the way to realization. And it is also then the fruit of this realization. And again, this is something that is really inexpressible that uh, mystics try to express in various ways, and there's no real explaining it. This is the end of the path. This is why you have to walk it yourself. But here are some uh, expressions from various mystics. Here's what Catherine of Siena says. Because she has left all, she finds all. She has made herself the servant of all in humility, so now she is made mistress over the whole world. And here's what Rumi says. I have been delivered from this ego and self-will. Alive or dead, what an affliction. But alive or dead, I have no homeland other than God's bounty. And Lali Shwari, she was a great uh, Hindu saint from uh, Kashmir, 16th century. When the sun of knowledge rose, the dew of ignorance disappeared. When I realized my oneness with the name of God, my I-ness was obliterated, and Lali found peace. And Longchampa, who was a great Tibetan Buddhist master, he says, Aho! In the perception which is natural and pure from the beginning arises the wonderful intrinsic awareness that makes one laugh. There is no duality of mind and its object, and the perceiver is void in essence. That, that point of perception is void in essence. Mm-hmm. So we can summarize this by saying that all the methods, practices, disciplines in the path have only this one aim, to destroy this delusion of selfhood. Because, as the, cloud, uh, the author of The Cloud of Unknowing, a great Christian text says, you must realize and experience for yourself that unless you lose self, you will never reach your goal. For whatever you are and whatever you do or however you try, that elemental sense of your own blind being will remain between you and your God. So, even though this particular fundamental, the fourth fundamental, deals with and tries to account for various principles, all these kinds of disciplines, uh, virtues, precepts you might practice and so forth, that really all boils down to this one simple uh, overriding prime directive, we might say, for those Star Trekkies of you, uh, and that is selflessness. However you find it, whatever it means to you. You don't need any formal practices. You don't need a tradition. You don't need anything else. If you just started today walking out that door, 
saying, I'm going to find out what this selflessness is all about. Started trying to act selflessly, started trying to investigate, look in, is there a self there? That's all you need. That is the quest. That is the path. Everything else is extra. Everything else is relative to that. Everything else is an aid to that, that people have found over the thousands of years that mystics have been uh, walking this path and have it was helpful to them, so they pass it on to you. There's no should, you should do this. It's, this was helpful to us. You might want to try it. These meditation techniques were helpful to us. These precepts were helpful to us. This is the way we went. Here it is. It's the wisdom of our spiritual ancestors accumulated and handed on. And it's here for us to make use of or not. It's like a great uh, uh, treasure house. You know, The doors are open. You can come in and take what you want. Or not, you can pass it by. So it really does boil down to this, and I hope that in your own spiritual practice and paths, you'll just remember this one word. And always when things seem to get uh, confusing or uh, obscure, or you think you're losing sight of what it's all about, if you just remember that one word, selflessness is the way. That will always guide you. You won't know where you're going, but that will guide you. <laughs> So are there any questions or comments or anything you want to discuss from your uh, own experience? Well, I don't have a, like a specific example, but um, a, there, there's a dilemma associated with selflessness, it seems like. Almost, again, I can't come up with a specific example, but oftentimes there's the question, how do I be selfless in, in a specific situation? That's, that is the concrete example. How do I, the self, be selfless? There's the dilemma. In the Zen tradition, they, they take this inherent dilemma and they give it very concrete forms called the koan, which is an insoluble paradox. And they tell you, go work on this. And in a certain sense, the whole path is a koan. Everything in the path is a koan. Every time you turn around, you start to meditate. Who's meditating? It's all this... Cohen and the, the one of the beauties of the Zen tradition is they've boiled it down to you know these pithy little kinds of koans. Uh There's always an advantage and a disadvantage. Disadvantages there, there's a richness that that uh, you know that they miss that other people need. There's a sort of simplicity and elegance about that, but you know it's a trade-off. But you are absolutely right. There is a dilemma at the heart of the spiritual path because there's a dilemma at the heart of our delusion. This is, this is, in a certain sense, if you have a philosophical bent of mind, this is proof, in a certain sense, that we are living a delusion. It, it's logically impossible. We cannot be a self. And every way you start to investigate it, you will run up in one form or another, you'll uncover this dilemma, this dilemma. And that is what the path is about. It's about grappling with that dilemma. Whether that dilemma comes in the form of a, a philosophical, uh, logical inquiry, into the nature of reality and the ultimate, or whether it's a dilemma that comes in a devotional practice where how can I love God absolutely selflessly when I'm still here trying to love God selflessly? Do you see what I mean? Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, at, at every range of the spectrum, this dilemma shows up, and that's what the path's about, and that's what the end of the path's about. It's that when that dilemma ceases, when that sword of gnosis slashes through it, cuts the knot of delusion. It just disappears. Mm -hmm.
just thinking that if um, you truly practice selflessness, that there isn't a, an awareness that you're practicing selflessness, that you are just there and being there as you're doing whatever needs to be done in that particular moment. This is why the Hasidic master said, when you're prayer, praying, if you even are aware that you are praying, that's not the deepest levels of prayer. Now, the trick here is it's not that there isn't awareness of praying, but there's no you aware of praying. It's not about becoming unconscious in our modern psychological sense of the word of, you know, oblivion. But what would it be like with awareness, just awareness and phenomena happening, but no sense of a self in there? Yeah, I, I think akin with that would be uh, when you're having a good time, you're not conscious of time. Is, is, isn't the expression that you lose yourself in it? Why do we have that expression and why do we go out to sporting events or to movies or have escapist entertainment? What is it about that they all have in common? or a, a, a wonderful Mozart concert and a hockey game. What do they have in common? Why do people go to those things? Because you lose, you, for a temporarily a little bit, you lose your sense of self. We know intuitively that this is happiness. The, the trouble is those forms that give us a little of that experience, uh, it, it's temporary. They don't really, and there's nothing, there's no... Uh, at least usually in a hockey game, unless you're taking as a spiritual path, there's no wisdom. It doesn't impart anything to you that you can continue in this way. It just distracts you from your sufferings and your problems for a while, and then you go right back in. Yeah. But, uh, it, but you're right. To, to, to tie that, uh, you know, when you're having a good time, that uh, you, uh, you're not conscious of time. But when you're selfless, that you're not conscious of being selfless. That, that was the connection that I was trying to make with the, you know, the, the And that's true. But the, the thing here is now to start observing that in your own life, in those moments, like when you're doing something that you feel selfless and you're not conscious of time and so forth, and start paying attention so that you realize, really in your own experience, oh, gee, this selflessness is really quite lovely. Because our minds, our egos, when we hear selflessness, get terrified, get all uptight. You know, oh, I can't be selfless. I'll, you know, people take advantage of me and this and that. But when you look to your own experience, you say, oh, wait a minute, this isn't so bad. And that's what convinces you, your own experience. That's what uh, leads you deeper and deeper and, and allows you to risk more and more. The mystery of mysticism, it permeates everyday life. The mystery is this dilemma at the heart of it. But these aren't principles that only apply to uh, people living in monasteries or something. They apply to all of us, and they, they manifest in the most ordinary life. Just look around, just inquire, keep your eyes up and observe. Now I have a concrete example. Good. And that is... Uh, as People often ask me to give them money. They ask for spare change. Mm -hmm. And and for me, it's a dilemma as to what is the selfless response or what is the, uh, what's the right thing to do in this case. How many people in this room have uh, run into this exact same situation? <laughs> Please raise your hands. 
we all have this, uh, you know, precept of charity. And this is, in our Wednesday group, this is one of the first things, of course, that uh, this precept throws light on those situations. The, the most important initial thing is that uh, most people, when they're faced with that dilemma, look away. They go down the street, somebody asks them for change, they just look away. Or they sort of guiltily throw a little change out and, and hurry on. So if you have a precept of charity, immediately changes everything if you take it seriously because it forces you to look at that situation, not hide from it, not turn your back. It forces you to face that reality. So right away it's working. Whether you give money or not, it's, the precept's already working, you see? And then that's exactly right. It brings to light this dilemma. Now you have your Cohen, right, staring you in the face. You can grapple with it. Good practice. <laughs> it, it hit me the other day when I was asked for spare change. My honest, it, the honesty said, well, no, I don't have any change. It happens to be spare that I was just going to throw away. No. Give <laughs> <laughs> a conflict. There, there are times when the precepts themselves conflict, and then you're right back with your dilemma. Let me, let me add one other thing about this. That... Um, Everybody thinks this path leads to a kind of solution. Everything's going to eventually become clear and you're going to understand everything and whatnot. And we're thinking about this in terms of our normal <laughs> ways of conceiving of understanding and clarity. And yet in, in all the uh, mystical traditions, there are expressions like Ibn Arabi's, and he says this path leads to bewilderment. And then we read that and we think... And then it happens to us, we're bewildered, and we think something's wrong, but it, that means it's working. Or um, uh, the Taoist tradition, you know, they talk about uh, unknowing. On the, in, in, in worldly life, you learn more every day, and in, on the path, on the, uh, following the way, you learn less and less until you know nothing at all. Mm -hmm. So then when we get into a situation where we don't know, we get all frightened. But, but this is working, you see? So just keep that in mind, too. Okay, well, let's bring the formal part of the morning to a close. You're welcome to stay and have tea and check out the library. And don't forget the donation box. And until next time, peace to you all.